Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the history of the Congo. Season 3, Episode 4 The End of the First Republic. Last time, we left the Congo in the spring of 1961. Much has happened since Independence Day on the 30th of June the year before, and not much of it positive for the Congo. Katanga remains an independent state, as it had been mostly since independence was declared, which was followed by the Kasai province, which declared semi-autonomous status the month after in August. Whilst this was happening, Belgium, the former colonial masters, were launching operations as they saw fit to protect ex-colonials, who were suffering tremendously at the hands of the population. In response, Prime Minister Lumumba asked for help from the UN, the US and the USSR. He wanted to fulfil his vision of a united Congo by any means necessary. He would not accept any Belgium or disaggregation of the nascent Congo nation's lands. He was successful in his lobbying, and Premier Khrushchev of the USSR supported military assistance as an opportunistic way to give communism a foothold in Central Africa. With some logistical support, Lumumba was able to order a three-front assault against the primarily Baluba peoples of the Kasai. This was literally a relatively modern military force against civilians. With minimal discipline in the ranks of the ANC, the operation was a massacre. With minimal discipline in the ranks of the Congolese army, the newly called ANC, the operation was a massacre, although it was seen by the outside world. The UN were there as non-interventionist peacekeepers, and they saw the operation firsthand. Dag Hammarskjöld, the UN Secretary-General no less, described the ANC offensive as nothing short of a genocide. The West was left aghast at the violence in the Congo, and although the UN had already voted to force Belgium to withdraw all troops, they saw no end to the suffering of the people. But now Lumumba, no doubt under intense personal pressure, had finally managed to alienate any US or UN support. His dialogue with them, such as it was, was seen as erratic, and he was perceived as unreliable at best, and unstable at worst. The invasion of the Kasai were the last straw. He was now seen as part of the problem, and so, in the parlance of the time, he was to be dealt with. After a period of house arrest under the protection of UN troops, Lumumba was captured by the ANC, as he tried to escape one stormy night to his stronghold in Stanleyville. There he was to find his loyal nationalist ally Antoine Gazenga in power. But, delayed by his euphoria at speaking to the people once again, he was captured at a river crossing. Now without UN protection, he was beaten and flown to Katanga as part of a Belgian plot with Chambay to return him to the central government in Leopoldville in order to gain favour and eventually allow Katanga and their Belgian co-conspirators to retain their wealth. But their plan failed. Lumumba was executed in the forest with his two companions. And so a leader more amenable to the West was placed in charge. Ultimately, President Kasavuba was passed over as, although loyal, he was seen as too ineffective. Instead, Joseph Mobutu, the former journalist and sergeant turned chief of staff, was coerced to head a coup to run the country allowing the ineffective politicians to create a more capable power structure. It was down to him to lead and unite the country, this country having two secessionist states and a rival government based in the centre of the country in support of the previous Prime Minister who had just been assassinated. 
If you thought things were going to stabilise, we're not quite there yet. We're not even 12 months since independence, but this is critical to understand what happens next. The first thing to emphasise, if you haven't seen it already, is that the Congo was absolutely not in charge of its own destiny. After independence and its military were forced to leave the country, the Belgians still had significant interests in the country. Their economic assets, mostly in Katanga, led them to align with London Federalist forces and the southern African countries in seeking Katanga to distance themselves from the capital Leopoldville. The central government itself was also firmly under the influence of the Western powers. Mobutu had been nurtured into making a move by the US, who had been sponsoring him for some time through the CIA. He was seen by them as a man who could halt the violence, and so by increasing stability make it harder for a communist intervention. Even Antoine Gazenga, the Lumumba loyalist and natural successor, had tacit, although minimal, support from the USSR. It's time we talked more about him. Gazenga was actually the vice president at the time of independence, being a strong advocate of Congo nationalism and pan-Africanism. When Lumumba was arrested at the time of the Kasabubu coup, he immediately flew to Stanleyville to set up a rival government. Gazenga's party was the Parti Solidaire Africain, or PSA. Like Lumumba's MNCL, the PSA was a centralist party. His Stanleyville government de-emphasised internal ethnic loyalties and didn't want a federalist structure. It was hugely successful geographically, and now covered about a third of the country, stretching from the Quilu to the Kindu provinces. Despite its reach and military potential though, it really lacked any administrative structure, and unlike other Congolese rival governments, didn't attract tangible international support. It was in essence part of the rump of the political process that was left after Mobutu's coup. This rival government was not a rebellion. It was a reactionary, legitimate government after the assassination of Lumumba. Gazenga's party wanted a strong and united Congo, and they were prepared to negotiate with the central government. A glimmer of hope for later. For the first half of 1961, with the country so divided, the central government was unable to address the independent Kazai regime led by Albert Kalonji. Their capital, Mbuchi-Maya, was enjoying some success and they were enjoying the revenues from the diamond mines and the forests. As we have seen in the last episode, Air paid its revenues to the Kasai regime. The confidence of the Baluba was growing, and for now, they were largely left alone. What was firmly on the agenda, however, was Katanga. As we saw at the end of the last episode, they were reinforcing their military. The majority of the troops were the famous Katangan gendarmes, but don't let the gendarmes title confuse you. This was much more of an army than a police force. The men were troopers demobilised from the force publique, but tanningly only those of Katangan loyalty and residence. This translated to them being primarily Lunda, but also Bazella and other ethnicities, including the Baluba and Belgians. By mid-1961, the gendarmerie manpower was around 8,000. The Katangan army was largely organised around the previous force publique hierarchy with one notable exception, Congolese officers. Katanga wasn't wholly immune to the mutinies after independence, and partially as a response to this, the internal promotions were made rapidly. But there was also another influence, perhaps influenced by the more liberated English-speaking neighbours into the south, and of course born of necessity for officers. Just over 140 Congolese held a commission. But Shombe, his deputy Monongo, and the Belgian officers were no fools. They needed experienced officers and troops with frontline experience and so the mercenaries began to arrive. 
In March 1961, the first three groups arrived, totalling around 80 men. They were a mix of South Africans, British, Italians, Belgians, and even a Greek and an Israeli. They were given rifles and sent for training near the Shinkalovwe mines. But the start wasn't great. Many had been recruited under the false auspices that they were joining a police force, and the training soon revealed that it was one for war. One man immediately deserted, and the recruiting officer, who naively thought he would inspect the troops after his economical truths, was forced to run as the men attempted to attack him. Officer behaviours did little to instil confidence either. Notionally in charge was Richard Brown, a moustached British man with a well-to-do accent. He paraded with his swagger stick, that small yard of wood military officers use as a rank of power, issuing orders but he was constantly undermined by a subordinate who kept telling the recruits he was drunk. Nevertheless, the recruits did train, and despite the difficulties, the time is still remembered fondly by them. Most spent their evening drinking and sharing beers with UN troops in the local bars and the La Relais nightclub. It must have been an atmospheric evening, UN soldiers from Ireland, Nigeria and India sharing a club with a ragtag band of mercenaries to Congolese rumba and Congolese ambience. Katanga was an adventurous place to be in early 1961, for sure. The French recruits fared little better. Colonel Trinquier arrived in northern Rhodesia with his contingent of men, but he was not even allowed to enter Katanga. The Belgians had heard of the French plans, and Belgian loyalists were determined that de Gaulle would not extend his reach there. Once again, the Congo was argued over by outsiders, with no interest but their own in hand. But for Trinquier, money trumped his loyalty to France and he slipped across the border. He met a Belgian officer, Guy Weber, who told Trinquier in no uncertain terms that in the Congo, it is the Belgians who run things. He was ordered to leave, and his officers and troops were told to report to the Belgians at the Belgian pay. This was slower than they had promised as part of their recruitment, backed as it was by France, and so, unsurprisingly, many abandoned their adventures and essentially made their way back to France through whatever means they could find. An expedition of sorts, I guess. I find the stories of the gendarmes and mercenaries fascinating, as it adds real colour to the times. For many in the gendarmeries, there was a real loyalty to Katanga. It was not just to support Belgium and the mining companies at all. Many of the peoples, including the Lunda, had historic ties to the land far in excess of that they had to the wider Congo. Lumumba's pan-Congolese rhetoric must have had little resonance with them. In many ways, Katanga was acting as a nation-state, with postage stamps, banknotes, and even a national anthem. The Katangan flag proudly displayed the Katangan cross, inspired by the copper crossettes from the 19th century that we saw all those episodes ago when Msiri was plotting to take over the region. Such thoughts are anathema to many Congolese writers, I think. Lumumba was the Congolese saviour, and the country breakup was largely as a result of foreign interests. Of course, to some extent this is true, but I think the strength of the pre-colonial empires was just stronger, especially in areas where this could be added to with a sense of monetary loss, which was very much present in the rich region of Katanga. Lest we forget it was Abaco, the party of the Kingdom of the Congo all those years before, which started the independence ball rolling. We'll discuss more of this later, but for now, back to the story. So we now have a force of loyal but largely inexperienced troops, supplemented by a ragtag collection of mostly adventurer mercenaries. In June 1961, the Katangan army would start its first offensives. Operations Bankui, Mambo and Lotus. 
The objectives were to take and hold Northern Katanga, which was held by the Balubakat Party. This was the rival Luba-dominated Katangan political party, as the name suggests. It was in conflict with the Lunda-dominated Konakat Party of Shombe, and it was supported by the central government. Supported by the ANC, Balubakat had made significant territorial gains in 1960, and Katanga needed to reclaim this in order to stop any risk of being cut off from the north. It was a bloody war. As the convoy headed north towards Monono, they were attacked 18 times in only 15 miles. Remnant of the Baljo-Swahili wars at the end of the 19th century, the weaponry was a mix of the ages. The Luba attacked the South Katangan forces with guns, which roughly every one in three soldier had, but also with poisoned arrows which paralysed before they killed. They relied on witch doctors to protect them from gunfire, which only worked if they stripped naked. Their sense of invulnerability was greatly enhanced by the drugs they used. With no quarter given for prisoners, and villages burned and destroyed, it must have been terrifying. But the Katanga offensive succeeded. The Baluba and the ANC were routed. Thousands were killed. The Katanga forces reached Monona and bizarrely shared a drink with the Nigerian UN peacekeepers there. They had had no orders to intervene, and eventually this dispute was an internal affair with only Congolese involved. In another historic throwback, the Katangis found a warehouse full of looted ivory. The suffering of the few elephants that remained carried on until the 20th century. After taking Monona, reinforcements arrived, and the Katanga force pushed north to Kabolo, an important river port giving access to the water highway of the Central African Plateau. It was an attack by air, rail and river. High on success they felt invincible. The aircraft landed first, but they were met by Ethiopian UN troops who were less laissez-faire than the Nigerians further south. Brown, the Katanga commander, asked them, which side of the sound is ours? But the whole company was promptly arrested at gunpoint and imprisoned after a rather tense standoff. The ferry arrived under withering fire, not just from the ANC and Balubakat, but also the Ethiopians. They were aggrieved at the loss of two of their comrades in the fighting. In a lucky, or unlucky shot, depending on how you look at it, a UN mortar shell landed down the funnel of the old colonial river steamer, which then exploded. Mercenaries and gendarmes were thrown or jumped into the river. They were caught in a frenzy of crocodile feeding, and suffered withering fire from the banks. One of the company, a priest in fact, made it to the bank, but he was promptly shot in the face and killed. This was brutal indeed. The train never even arrived. It was ambushed on the way. The Katanga attack had stalled. The captured mercenaries at the airfield were subject to beatings as a grievance for UN casualties, but then they were taken out of the country. They were a trouble to be removed. First, they were moved to Leopoldville, and then on to Brazzaville in the neighbouring Republic of the Congo. Amazingly, here they appeared to benefit from a sudden redemption. They were approached by a Norwegian UN official to ask if they wanted to act as military advisers in Laos, as the US turn in the Vietnam War was just starting. But with one in three casualties there, however, they declined. But Katanga kept building its military force, assisted by its wealth, of course. Its army continued to grow, and by November 1961 it had 13,000 troops. Discipline was maintained, and more foreign mercenaries arrived from the southern African countries and Belgium. The Balubakat threat, even supported by the Tsarnyville government and the ANC, was firmly contained. After 18 months of existence, Katanga very much looked like surviving, 
but it still had formidable foes. By August 1961, other events subjected Katanga to greater focus. In that month, Albert Kalonji, the leader of the South Kasai, moved a step too far. He changed the name of South Kasai to the Royal Federation of South Kasai, and Kalonji dropped the title of president for Malopwe, that traditional title of Luba Kings. He was now treating the Kasai secessionist state as the continuation of the Luba Empire. This split Kalonji's party, MNCK, and his opponents, particularly the elected politicians in Leopoldville, were vehemently against this. Added to this, the regime was becoming increasingly militaristic. Peoples unwilling to accept Luba rule, such as the Kanyok, were subject to brutal oppression. At broadly the same time, the central politicians attempted unity through democracy. Given the fractured state of the country, elections would have been nigh impossible, but Parliament, as determined by the pre-independence elections, elected a new leader, Cyril Adula. Adula was a unionist and a moderate, and he tried hard to bring consensus to the government. He created a self-declared government of national unity. He appointed several Lumumba supporters, and he espoused conciliation across the political spectrum. He had little of the freedom a truly independent Prime Minister would have, though. General Mobutu retained control of the military, which he used to exert considerable pressure. Others also stressed the strong influence both the US and the UN had on both men, to the extent of calling this a puppet regime. But he was officially an operational charge nonetheless. During his inaugural address, Adula declared that his government would take adequate measures permitting each region to administer itself according to its own profound aspirations. Legislative efforts to achieve the goal began immediately, but faced strong opposition from the Lumumbarist bloc, which felt that Katanga problems should be resolved before any discussion concerning the division of the provinces. He was able to bring the Stanleyville Lumumba supporters into the consensus, and so the rival Stanleyville government rejoined the government in Leopoldville. Gizenga was now part of the central government, and the central and eastern areas controlled by the PSA were once again governed by Leopoldville. A month later, the Kasai Rebellion ended. In September 1962, an internal military revolt was held, supported by the Congolese government and Luba representatives in the capital. Kalonji's own chief of staff spearheaded the coup. The Luba kingdom was overthrown, bringing Kasai II back under Leopoldville. Albert Kalonji himself fled to exile in Franco-Spain, where he still claimed the title Souverain Possesseur de Terre Occupé par les Balubas, or Sovereign Owner of the Lands Occupied by the Baluba. Easy for you to say. He died in April 2015 and was buried in Katendi, the sacred village of Luba royalty. By now, even Belgium officially supported a united Congolese state, thereby wanting independent Katanga to fail. The new socialist government, elected in Brussels, was firmly aligned with the UN and the US supporting Leopoldville. With international support from nearly all quarters and these significant successes, the central government started to become more hardline. Prime Minister Adula was strong on cooperation, as we have seen with bringing the Stanleyville government back to the fold but he was also strongly influenced by the new Kennedy US administration. They firmly wanted Katanga back in the fold to quash any communist incursions. The international cards were stacked against Katanga, and late August the UN launched Operation Rum Punch. This primary objective was to remove all foreign military from Katanga, i.e. the mercenary leadership, 
Secondary objectives were to capture the hardline Godfried Manungo and take key buildings such as the radio station and the post office. Territorially, the operation was a success. Indian troops captured the radio station and a Gurkha regiment held the post office, both in the first morning. Swedish and Irish troops surrounded Manungo's home. After six hours of negotiation, Shombay broadcast a message dismissing all foreign members of the forces then went home after a mild heart attack. This is what defeat felt like. Almost. The UN was powerful, but it couldn't act unilaterally. In response, the Belgian government declared that it had no power to deport its citizens from the Congo or any other country, so they were free to stay, if they could avoid the UN, and avoid the UN they did. UMHK, the mining company, recruited some in made-up office jobs, and others simply hid. Officially, between 250 and 338 foreign officers and NCOs were captured by the UN, but the vast majority reappeared after a few days to take up their old jobs. There are stories of officers wearing shirt and ties dashing to the front lines once again. Relations between Shombay and O'Brien, the UN representative and Katanga, deteriorated. The following month, the UN upped the ante again, and Operation Martor was launched. This was to end the secession once and for all, and troops invaded the country to occupy strategic buildings and literally arrest foreign mercenaries this time. But Katanga was ready. Initially, the UN took the post office, but was then subject to fierce counter-attack and was set alight by a mortar round. Irish troops took the radio station, but after two days of heavy fire, they were forced to surrender. The population of Katanga had no love for the UN, whom they saw as a foreign occupying force they were going to fight. They then went on the offensive. A Katangan Air Force Fuga Magistadret strafed the airfield, damaging UN planes. Not even the UN headquarters were safe, coming under heavy direct fire on the 16th of September, with one fatality and six injuries. UN reinforcements were held back as Katanga attacked the Irish company at Jadoville, effectively closing the road to Colwesi. This company held on for three days, despite having not received the requested ammunition from UNHQ. There is a good film which tells this story from the Irish side, called The Siege of Jadoville. Worth watching for sure. There aren't too many Irish war films, at least not that I know of. Revealing the strength of Katanga, when reinforcements were finally sent, they were subject to air attacks such that they couldn't reach the station, finally halting at the Lufira River, where a bridge had been mined in anticipation of their crossing. In short, Katanga could hold its own against the UN. Yes, that's correct. This small breakaway province in southeastern Congo could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe in a battle with the United Nations. And then the UN suffered a personal tragedy. On the 18th of September 1961, Dag Hammarskjöld, the UN Secretary-General, was flying to North Rhodesia to broker a peace with Shombay. Retrospectively, many believe that he was close to peace. But we will never know. The plane he was on crashed and he and the other 15 people on board all perished. There are conspiracy theories. You can probably guess them already. It was the USSR, it was the Belgians, it was UMHK. Some witnesses even stated that the plane was on fire as it hit the ground, meaning it was shot down. Honestly, I don't know. But he was a spiritual man. One of his quotes in his only book was, We are not permitted to choose the frame of our destiny but what we put into it is ours. He who wills adventure will experience it, according to the measure of his courage, 
he who will sacrifice will be sacrificed, according to the measure of his purity of heart. He was dedicated to peace. Yet another good man killed in the Congo prices. May he rest in peace also. The day after the plane crash, a ceasefire was declared for supplies and prisoner exchange. An urgent UN report detailed that it didn't have adequate air support, artillery or armour to fight Katanga. Katanga was by now a very effective fighting force. Hammarskjöld's passing led to the appointment of a new Secretary General, Uthant, a Burmese diplomat. He inherited the Katanga problem and added to this the UN was running out of money, so he came up with a new plan. Negotiations were held for months with Shombe, where he would allow for concessions regarding the handover of political and military power, but every time he returned to Katanga, these would be renounced, and a fully federalist Congolese structure was again requested. There is much weight behind the argument that his hardline number two, Monongo, was behind this. Clearly, Msiri's blood ran through him. Eventually, UN patience ran out, and after a further 15 months, Operation Grand Slam was launched on December 1962. By this time, Katanga had been independent for almost two and a half years. For the majority of this, they had faced the rest of the world alone. Operation Grand Slam was launched into a pressure cooker. Fighting had been occurring for months. UN aircraft had been downed, troops had been killed in firefights, and mercenaries had hijacked UN trains. The Katangas hated the UN, spitting at their boots and refusing them entry to bars. In return, the UN troops were building these feelings towards Katanga. The US wanted results immediately. Moscow was offering its army to Mobutu should he pledge alliance with them. On 28th of December, the fighting started. Katangi gendarmes started shooting Ethiopian UN troops in the Katangan capital, Elizabethville. They shot back, climbing a slag heap to fire down on troops in civilian areas. By the end of the day, UN Gokas had taken the central areas and an Indian battalion attacked and took the radio base and the gendarmes camp. Residents started to fill their baths with drinking water in anticipation of a siege. This offensive, the UN were ready. The next day, two companies of Gurkhas and two companies of Indian regiments, supported by armoured cars and heavy mortars this time, pushed out of the city centre. They took the Katangis Karavia military base on the outskirts of the city and the key rail and road crossing, allowing for reinforcements. A further two companies of Indian troops, an Irish battalion, a Tunisian battalion and six Ethiopian battalions joined the fray. They took the Simba Hills around the capital as well as the airport and gradually the Katangan resistance fell into disarray. There was hand-to-hand fighting at the airport and a vicious gun battle was fought in the hospital gardens but the writing was on the wall. Despite promises of a scorched earth policy by the Belgian ultras, many mercenaries started to desert particularly the English-speaking ones. They knew full well what would happen if they fell into the hands of some of the UN troops, or more frighteningly, the ANC. They would be tortured and shot quickly. The UN were tired of seeing their friends killed. Katanga had fallen. Refugees fled the city as bullets flew by the Christmas decorations. But the killer blow fell as UMHK, the mining company that funded the state, negotiated a taxes deal with a doula in Leopoldville. There was nothing left. Tshombe and the gendarmes fled to Portuguese Angola, with the gold reserves of course, estimated at £5 million. The mercenaries were actually pardoned as part of their surrender terms. The remaining Katangis gave up arms 
as long as no ANC were allowed in, they knew they would suffer heavy retribution. And that was it. In July 1963, the Katangan secession ended by UN force, two and a half years after independence. And so the Republic of the Congo was united under the Leopold government for the first time since June 1960. The Congolese now have their third Prime Minister in Cyril Andula, not including the time when General Mobutu put himself officially in charge. The UN started to withdraw, recognising at their height they had 20,000 troops in the country, leading to 234 deaths, including the Secretary General. Even the Belgians withdrew somewhat, leaving the companies to negotiate with the Congolese government. But it was a sadly short-lived peace. There were to be no peace dividends for the Congolese people. Prime Minister Adula struggled to achieve the unity of the country it so deserved. Lumumba and his followers called Lumumbists were still seen as a concern by the US. This meant that they were a concern for their man in the Congo, Joseph Mobutu, who maintained military power. Mobutu launched a campaign and largely succeeded in removing any Lumumbists from power. By October 1963, many of these had fled to Congo Brazzaville, which had recently experienced a communist coup and was increasing its ties with the Soviet Union. The Cold War was still very much in effect, and it was not finished with the Congo. The general population was unsurprisingly unhappy with events since independence. The election promises made to them by all parties had long since evaporated, and they had endured years of aggression and struggle, often at the hands of their own army. Discontentment was rife, but the imperialists were gone. A new enemy had to be found. People's lives had got harder since independence, so obviously the new Congolese politicians were to blame. There were now whisperings of a second independence against the, and I quote, new whites. Any notions that the government would come together to support the people were laughed at. Indeed, doing politics became a euphemism for lying in everyday language. All that was needed was a spark. And that spark was Pierre Mouelle. Pierre Mouelle was a firm Lumumberist, an ally of Antoine Gazenga. He would have looked at Mobutu's machinations with concern. He spent time after Lumumba's assassination as Gazenga's foreign representative in Cairo, Egypt being a friendly, non-Western-aligned state. Then in 1962, he travelled to China, where he spent over a year learning Maoism and guerrilla warfare. He possessed a dangerous combination of revolutionary ideas, zeal and military knowledge. He arrived in the Congo, in the Kwilu province, centred in Kikwit, just east of the capital. He built up followers of school teachers, clerks and students, as well as the masses of unemployed youth in urban areas, offering a doctrine which provided some hope. These were drawn from the Pendi people, the same tribe and the same Pendi who revolted against the palm oil companies in the 1930s. He also successfully recruited their neighbours, the Umbunda. The doctrines were firmly Maoist. Respect people, don't take their possessions, and most importantly, destroy the old order. But they were also slightly troubling. Anti-intellectualism was baffling, but could be dismissed with a shrug. But secularism was more troublesome. We have seen time and time again the power of religion, including the rise of Kempervinta and Kimbanguism. But in January 1964, his followers rose up. In line with the Maoist ethos, they rejected outside help and fought with antique guns, spears and bows and arrows. But this time their successes were overwhelming. 
managing to kill an army colonel and a commander. Piemuele was seen as a great military general and his followers were loyal. They truly believed they were invulnerable to bullets. His success was such that he inspired yet another rebellion, the Simba Rebellion, a rampage from the east. The political party, the Concern Nationale de Liberation, or CNL for short, was born from the exiled Lumumbrists in Congo Brazzaville in 1963. Every time a Congolese power tries to squash a problem, they just defer it. You can see this with ethnic loyalties, Kimbangoism, and in the 1960s Lumumbrists. It's just layer after layer of disagreement pushed around the country. They never seem to be able to reconcile the differences. This continually stores up trouble for later, which we will see again in the future. But for now I digress. The CNL were the radical legacy of the MNCL, or Gazenga's PSCA, whichever Lumumba loyalist party you choose. But their demands were manifested militarily. Their successes were astonishing and horrifying in equal manner. Led by Joseph Kabila, who remained largely in Dar es Salaam, they advanced to take over the entire eastern half of the country, with the exception of Kasai and South Katanga. They were frenzied warriors, high on narcotics, and believing that Mueli was able to turn bullets into water, they would launch full frontal assaults as hordes of Simba warriors would charge at all who stood in their way. Casualties did not stop them. The ANC would flee at the terror, as they knew they would not stop. By July 1964, the Simba Rebellion had advanced 1,000 kilometres in a month, reaching Stanleyville, a city of 300,000 people. Convinced by their invulnerability, the Simba assaulted, and after a very brief firefight, the 1,500 ANC troops fled. With this, river traffic stopped. No more ore would come from Katanga to the Atlantic. More importantly, the residents were subject to horrific abuse and assault at the hands of the warriors who they actually initially welcomed. They thought they were Lumumbrists, who were to free them from oppression. As ever, the truly keep-you-awake horror of what they suffered will be largely spared here. But there is one person who tells our story with more grace than I could possibly imagine. Dr Helen Rosevere was a missionary who was captured and suffered at their hands. She was able to look beyond this and to find strength in love and her religion. Her tale is told in her book, Give Me This Mountain. Despite her imprisonment and abuse, she returned to the Congo just a few years later to continue her calling. The Congo truly is a land that people can fall in love with. For the less literary amongst you, you can see Dr Helen Rosevere's interviews on YouTube. I think all of us can find some inspiration in her words. The Simbas killed tens of thousands of people, including Jason Sendway, who led the Baluba Cat party against Shombe. He was pulled from his car and hacked to death by machetes. Yet again the world looked on, how could this be stopped? Mobutu, who was effectively in charge, knew he couldn't fight this, and the UN were now gone and they had very little appetite to return. But he needed help. And ever the pragmatist, can you guess who he called? Unbelievably, he turned to Shombe, the ex-leader of Katanga, and his foreign mercenaries. But this time they were supported by both the US and the Belgian military directly. The UN troops had just left, and it was down to direct assistance. The CSL were officially socialist, and were to be stopped. This is looking for an ideology, really. There was no real revolutionary leaders to be found. These were just vicious men bent on revenge and looting, steeped in xenophobic and mystic beliefs. But the carnage needed to end nonetheless. 
If you're struggling to keep up, I understand. It is the sheer incredulity of the Congo that drives us to it. We now have General Babutu, supported by the US, overtly calling the shots. The UN have left, but the former Katanga leader and military, only recently public enemy number one, has been called in to ally with the central government fighting the Simba rebellion. In fact, Jombe has even been appointed prime minister at the expense of Adula, and mercenaries, usually Europeans, have been appointed as officers in the ANC. This was the cause of the original mutiny in 1960, lest we forget. It seems all of this has been forgotten now. Sometimes we just have to do a double take, just to check the history. And so, a force of Katangan gendarmes and mercenaries was mobilised. Initially, the Belgian military provided logistics officers and trained the ANC troops, whilst the US provided actual logistical support and transportation. But being the Congo, of course, this soon escalated, and Belgian troops were once again asked to put their boots on the ground. Old adversaries had come together. Overall command was given to a Belgian intelligence officer and former Katanga attaché, Colonel Vanderville. The leader of the mercenaries was the Englishman Mike Hoare, a chartered accountant by profession, who had led four commando for Katanga and was now in charge of around 500 foreign mercenaries. Mike Hoare has written a number of books if you're looking for more first-hand accounts of his experiences. Military operations commenced in October 1964. The International Army, including the ANC of course, were surprised at the rebels' tenacity and aggression. The government offensive was two-pronged, with the objective to relieve Stanleyville and the hostages taken there. With air power, armoured cars and modern weaponry, the forces advanced from the old UN Kamina base in southern Katanga. This included the Katangi gendarmes, now welcomed back from Angola. Despite taking heavy casualties, these were successful, retaking Albertville and freeing 130 European hostages. So they continued, advancing through the eastern Kivu provinces and the northern Equator and Oriental provinces. Such was the extent of the Simba territory. Operation Dragon Rouge was launched 23rd of November as an airborne strike to specifically free Stanleyville and the hostages held there. 543 experienced Belgian para-commandos were flown in US C-130 aircraft via Kamina from the Ascension Islands. In the first wave, 300 troops parachuted under fire to capture and clear the airfield of petrol drums and other debris that had been placed there. After this was achieved, the second wave landed, carrying more troops, ammunition and armoured cars. They landed under fire and were under constant attack, but after finally securing the airfield, they determined where the hostages were and they fought their way to the Victoria Hotel. Once there, they found around 250 hostages huddled together. The rebels had mostly fled as they realised they were defeated, but as they did, they attacked the hostages with spears and the six rifles they had. Two young girls, five women and 15 men were dead. All 40 Belgian hostages had been wounded. Gradually a stream of civilian emerged from hiding to join the force desperate to escape. Normal loading rules on the aircraft were ignored and, cramped and relieved, around 1,400 hostages were evacuated that night. From here the overland Katangis force linked with the paracommandos and systematically started to liberate the other towns. Every town told the same story. Europeans were killed and attacked, and even cannibalism reared its ugly head yet again. It was estimated that around 300 hostages were killed during the uprising. 
Chilling anecdotes state that this was smaller than the retribution the ANC inflicted upon rebel areas after occupation ended. This retribution was something the Belgian and US troops had to distance themselves from, but they knew they couldn't control it. On the 26th of November, the US Secretary of State ordered all Belgian and US forces to withdraw. The majority of hostage areas were now taken back, and simply patience for fighting in the Congo after four years was waning. Belgian troops returned to medals and a hero's parade, but in the words of military author Andrew Hudson, their operations were over, but the war with the rebels was not. The papers estimated there were still around 900 hostages still unaccounted for. General Mobutu was undaunted. In early 1965, Mike Hall was promoted to overall command and led to the assault in the remaining eastern and northeastern provinces till held by the rebels. This was Operation White Giant. As they travelled further into the rebel heartland, the backers became clearer. Rebels were fielding Soviet AK-47s and Chinese heavy machine guns. There were even firefights across the Sudanese and Ugandan borders with their national armies. The Ugandan army was accused of exchanging weapons for Congolese ivory and gold. As ever, conflict in the Congo was fuelled from outside, and just as sadly, the elephants continued to pay the ultimate price. Hoare and the ANC continued fighting through 1965, eventually pushing up to the shores of Lake Tanganyika. Here, they fought Rwandans too, but surprisingly also Che Guevara and a small force of Cubans. Their involvement, however, was short-lived, as they found no true revolutionary seal in the Simba Rebellion. Kabila's armies were ultimately violent opportunists. They had no real interest in socialist ideology. The Cubans left in 1965, and Shea's diaries reveal only disappointment. By October 1965, the Simba Rebellion had largely been squashed. Pierre Mueli still held a small area of territory around Quilu, but the country was more stable than it had been since independence, some five years before. It has been a brutal time for the Congolese. As predicted by the tribal chiefs prior to 1960, the power vacuum was filled with opportunists and violence. Neither the Lumumba centralist structure or the Katanga Kasai federalist structure had won over the other ideologically. The discussions descended into military conflict. In the midst of all this, the Cold War pursued its own agenda, with foreign powers picking and backing sides whilst the legacy economic interest of colonialism manoeuvred to keep their favoured positions. At the end of all this, General Mobutu finally made his move, supported by the US, and perhaps a world desperate to see peace now in the Congo. He dismissed Prime Minister Shombe on the 13th of October 1965. This young man was now the de facto ruler of the country, and although not declaring himself president until the following year, the Congo was now his to do as he wished, as long as he towed the US line. He was now in charge of a country desperate for stability, and with a population of 17.4 million people, it was growing from the 13.7 million people at the time of independence. And at this crucial junction we shall leave the Congo for season 3. You probably know, but the Congo, like many African countries, was now entering the Cold War era of the big men, or dictatorship. This presented its own suite of unique challenges for the people. We shall see these next time, in Season 4, in what is likely to be the end of the podcast. We are getting closer and closer to the present day. Presently we are 106,000 words into the journey, 
but there is still more to come. Please let me know your thoughts on the email and leave a few reviews. But until then, as ever, goodbye and safe travels.